Hi, this is Mark Fletcher, and welcome to my world. Welcome to Southern Tales, Tall and Otherwise. Many people admit that their drunk selves are prone to make poor choices than their sober selves would never make. However, it seems like for every hundred people who believe this, there's one person who genuinely believes that being buzzed makes them better in a variety of activities. Typically, these activities are harmless ones like lawn games or cooking, but every so often we hear driving. Today, we know this is not true, but back in rural West Tennessee in the 1970s, we got away with a lot of stuff. And like I say, it's just a Southern thing. Sit back and enjoy. Southern Tales, Season 2, Episode 3, Beer, Women, Clubs. Now tonight, we're going to get out of high school and wander into West Tennessee hotspots, or at least some of them. There were little bars and music clubs all over West Tennessee, and we loved the local bands that played there. Though the music was pretty great, let's face it, we were there for girls and beer, not always in that order. And while there may be some disputes about the actual facts... This is the way I remember it, and in my opinion, every goddamn word is true. When I was a little kid, I would ride in the back of my father's 63 Studebaker. I think it was a Lark. Uh, we had a two-door, but I think my brother had a four-door, but it doesn't matter. We would listen to music as diverse as Marty Robbins, Herb Albert, and the Tijuana Brass. I mean, that's a pretty wide range. And I don't think that rock was ever his thing, at least until we heard Candida by Tony Orlando and Dawn. And while that might not qualify as rock and roll today, it was definitely rock to my dad. I, I lost my innocence about music one night when a couple of us kids, maybe we were 11 or 12, I don't know for sure, but we were riding bikes in our neighborhood when we heard some loud music from the Q60 clubhouse. That was this log cabin type building where everybody in the neighborhood would go and have get-togethers or whatnot. So we rode up there, and there were some local kids who had formed a little band. They were probably 15 to 20 years old amongst them. They were all guys that I looked up to. 
It was like uh, Andy Long, Bill Whitehorn, Steve Short, maybe Bill Oates was there. I don't know for sure because we were on the outside. And all we heard was his sound over and over. Over and over they played that. Penetrated my soul. It was loud. I felt it. I could actually feel the vibrations running up and down my spine. Not that it was the greatest song ever. I mean, it was called, it's a pretty great song, but I've never forgotten that moment when rock and roll was born inside of me. So my quest began. My oldest brother, he was a fantastic Spanish classical guitarist. You know, the kind of guy that sits with the guitar on his lap, standing straight up, and they have all these picking all these individual notes seemingly a million at a time. And I used to love to hear him play. He could sometimes play pop songs that, you know, uh, that I was familiar with. I think he played a Bee Gees song that, that I can remember. But anyway, um, one day when I was like 14 or 15, knowing that I had an interest and in that most of our family had music inside them somehow, he gave me a 1967 Gibson folk guitar. It was beautiful. It was classic and it had nylon strings so I could learn without hurting my fingers and oh he gave me a Mel Bay instructional book so he was hoping that I would follow in his footsteps and become a great class guitarist and and so I got that book and I started learning the the, the chords and the different fingering patterns and and over and over kind of like when you're in typing class I don't think they have typing class anymore but I I as much as I worked I wasn't hearing that sound that I felt inside me, that rock sound. And not long after, I got a car and I drove to a music store near Carroll Lake, just south side of McKenzie, and made a horrible deal. Traded for a Fannin acoustic steel string guitar. It was one of the first Japanese guitars that was out there. I mean, truly the worst deal I ever made, but I had that sound. Now, that guitar I traded is probably worth thousands now. And my fanning guitar soon warped. But, hey, of course, it did get famous in the Dire Straits song, Sultans of Swing. And I still have that old fanning guitar if anybody is looking for a collector's item. But the real basis of all this for me was what I felt was I like to write. And I've been writing stories since fourth grade when I wrote a story called Robert Voodoo and the Crazy Creatures. And it won some kind of fourth grade award. Uh, and so I was always a writer, and that guitar was just one more outlet for, for my inspirations. I used to hang out at Elliott's Music in Milan whenever I could, going through all their albums. I, I think that's where I purchased my copy of the original T.R. Crooks record in 1976. Man, I burned that thing up on my turntable, and it still plays today. But the cool thing is these were guys that I, I could go and see and, and talk to and, and talk about music with. And, and so I started doing that. Whenever I could talk to musicians and learn things about playing or writing, I would do it. And, and when I graduated high school, the legal age was 18. And so I could go off into the clubs. You know, one of my favorite bands was Paper Castle. And, and when they played, it seemed like they were the Beatles to me. They had a bass player who I think still is one of the best bass players of all time named Paul Nagy. But they did a get-out-of-school concert in 77 or 78 at Muse Park in Jackson. There must have been a million kids there. A spectacular event. I was really, really inspired. 
But but back to the clubs. Century 21. Say that to anybody from my era, and they knew about Century 21. You see, there was one in Dyersburg, and there was one in Martin. It didn't really matter which one you went to. It was the same experience. You were going to get loaded. I have no idea how you were supposed to get home. No one thought about designated drivers back then. Century was what they called a beer bust. For $5, you got in and drank all the beer you could drink. Neither I or anybody had any idea of what kind of beer it was, but who really cares? Oh, and I forgot one critical detail. Girls got in free. Can you imagine what kind of drunken, wild-ass situations with everyone drinking unlimited and girls flocking in because it's free? There's probably a law against this now. But in those days, it was crazy. At Century in Dyersburg one night, Fitzy met some girls from Missouri, asked them to go to REO Speedwagon concert in Memphis. Now, we didn't even have tickets yet, and I didn't meet the girls, but he told me they were really cute girls. So we bought four tickets, and it wasn't a problem because there were only like a 1,000 people at the Mid-South Coliseum for REO Speedwagon. This is before they got famous. It was on the Nine Lives Tour. By the way, it was a great show, and I, one of my favorite albums, REO, is Nine Lives. But it was perhaps one of the worst double dates in the history of double dates. Obviously, they had met when they were all intoxicated and weren't sure what was going on or who they were like or looked like even. And I'm not sure which group was more unhappy, either them or us. But it kind of ruined the concert for me. Plus, we had to take them back to their car in Dyersburg. I swore I would never look at another Missouri girl again. One night in Martin at Century, me and Fitzy were there doing our thing, which meant we were drinking, and we met some girls from Greenfield. You know who you are. They were just as lit as we were, and we all started making out right there at the table when one of the girls screamed at the girl I was making out with, telling her her boyfriend was coming. I said, what? She said, oh, yeah, we came together. Then he sits down on the other side of her, and while he is kissing her, she is rubbing my leg much higher than someone with good morals should. I waved at Fitzy and pointed under the table. He started laughing so hard that he fell out of his chair. That was a typical night at Century. Later that night, we went through a DWI roadblock on Highway 45 just outside of Greenfield. I honestly have no idea how we made it through, but if you ever need a drunk to get you through a DWI roadblock, I nominate Fitzy. Of course, the night got wilder, and we'll hear about that in a later podcast. Just think about Greenfield. And, but drinking was legendary. I mean, boozing and cruising is what we would call it when we would get a six-pack and go out on the gravel roads, you know, all out in the country of Gibson and Carroll County and whatnot. Um, it's just what you did. Me and Fitzy one night, and my girlfriend at the time, Sue, we had drove to Martin to a club called Bogies to hear music one night. I, I can't even estimate how much we consumed, but it was, I, it was Jack Daniels and beer. I mean, we had to have it all, right? And it was like a 30 or 35-minute drive home. Of course, I'm driving. I had a 66 Dodge Charger, which was a great car, by the way. 
and on the way back from Martin, there used to be a 90-degree turn under a railroad track, I think somewhere near Idlewild or between, uh, who knows where it is, somewhere, somewhere out there. <laughs> but on this night, I don't remember going through that turn at all. But you had to slow down to like 30 miles an hour to make the two 90-degree turns. I don't think I remember the drive home, period. But the next day, Sue told me that she could not believe we were still alive and had got home. She said that she had passed out in the back seat and had woken up to see me approach in this 90-degree turn at about 75 miles an hour. She said she just laid back down on the seat and passed out again, expecting to die. Who knows? But Jackson was the place to go. It was our big city with the bright lights. And you keep hearing me talk about that over and over. But that was, you know, a metropolis to us. Um, they had a strip that you could cruise basically from the Village Inn Pizza Parlor on the 45 Bypass up Hickory Hill Boulevard. Was it Hickory Hill Boulevard? Yeah, I think it was. To the shopping center at Holland Avenue. You could hang out in Hamilton Hills and sit in your car and look cool while the other kids drove by. And, of course, you could drink anywhere. I think the Apple had closed by the time I got legal. But sometimes we would go to Heroes on the south side. They had the best deli and really good bands would play there. There was a club in Hamilton Hills. I think it was a country dance-all kind of place, maybe called TJ's. Somebody's going to have to tell me exactly about it. It changed names a couple times. We would go there in the early evening and get a few drinks. I remember one night, a bunch of off-duty policemen were selling cartons of cigarettes for a dollar apiece, and everyone was going crazy stocking up. Of course, I had to ask what's happening, and my girlfriend Debbie Ward told me that there had been an accident somewhere near the hut that afternoon involving a cigarette truck, and that the cops had gathered up all these cases and were selling them. Oh, okay. Who's going to tell them they can't? But then there were rough places. Places that uh, we'll talk about later. But if it was truly after after hours, like 4 in the morning or Sunday, and you wanted some MD-2020 or Thunderbird or some cheap beer, you could always go to Duke's or the Iron Horse. They were near each other, and they were on the Gibson-Carroll County line, kind of towards Atwood. And it was meant for all comers. Rough does not begin to describe it, and usually kids like us weren't welcome. I think they jacked up the prices when we would come creeping around. I'm sure that someone might write a book about these places one day, once all the guilty are dead, or in prison anyway. But, you know, as professional drinkers I was, my night of reckoning was coming. I was just a college kid working as an intern in the industrial engineering department at the ammunition plant where I grew up. All kinds of army brass would visit, and since I was new, I would be the one to give them tours and take care of them during their visit. One day, a young army lieutenant named Jeffrey Delamo came to visit us. He was with the Army Environmental Division and was there to do a couple of days of some sort of survey. I don't know what kind of survey it was, except it had something to do with environmental stuff. He was probably mid to late 20s, crew cut, thick glasses, a goob for sure. I was not excited when my boss told me to take him out that night and have a good time. Damn. I figured 
I should drop him off at the library, but I asked if he would like to go to Jackson and grab a beer. He was extremely eager, maybe too eager, uh, but I thought, what the hell? Let's just give it to him, right? So my girlfriend at the time, Debbie Ward, was working at a place called Big Mike's Speakeasy. It was on the north side of town, not too far from the old service merchandise up on the hill off of old Highway 45. Truly, it was a neat place. They would have uh, music there every now and then. My friend Bill Oates would play acoustic there some nights, and he was pretty fantastic. But the best thing is that their beer was absolutely ice cold, the coldest beer in West Tennessee. So Debbie was waiting on us, and I just told her, hey, keep our pitcher full. I was going to show this guy what a southern man could do. Hours went by, and eventually we closed that place down. And in my whole professional drinking life, I promise you, I never drank so much beer. Well, there was that night at, never mind. But the dude seemed fine. I remember we drove back to Milan, and I dropped him off to Holiday Inn and went home where I proceeded to have the worst night of my life. I continuously hugged the porcelain god the rest of the night. Every time I would go back and lay down, the room, the room would start spinning, and I would have to go back to the toilet on my knees. I couldn't even make it into work on time the next morning. We were supposed to be there at 7.45. I come sliding in about 9.30. Listen, wasn't a big deal. I was sure that Lieutenant Delamo had it worse and when I walked in, I saw my boss. I told him what happened. He said, wow, Delamo was here early. He's already hard at it. I about died. For the liner notes this episode and all episodes of the Southern Tales podcast, please go to broadneckmusic.com. Here you'll find out more information about the episode and, and some more depth. You'll also find about more about our kick-ass theme mu music from Audra Brown, one of Memphis, Tennessee's best, youngest guitar songwriters. You'll also find our email address, which is stalespodcast at gmail.com. Throw me your questions. Throw me your ideas. Even throw me your episodes, and maybe we'll get you in here as well. Once again, thanks for listening, and please tell a friend about the fun we're having at Southern Tales Podcast, 20 Minutes and a Smile. See you next week. <laughs>